We are Blender. You are welcome. Welcome to the Blender FM podcast. We're back with another episode, which I'm sure that's welcome news to the thousands who heard the first one. Uh, not so much for the 8 billion others, give or take, who didn't get the first one, but spread the word. It might take a few weeks for us to get to a billion subscribers, but every little helps. <laughs> so, my name's George Hopkin. I'm a Gen X journalist turned online content wrangler. And joining me on this quest to ask occasionally useful questions of everyone on the planet is Will Rankin, a fellow journo with a career that's seen him crush Middle Eastern government ministers, survive a tsunami, and puke in front of Princes William and Harry while out on an all-day bender in Sandringham <laughs> to celebrate the launch of the Apple iPhone 3G. Almost <laughs> all of that description is accurate, but Will, can you fill in the details, please? Well, what an introduction there, George. Hi. Truth be told, I did puke in front of the princes at an impressionable age. That's them, not me. I'd acquired an, all, uh, an access all areas pass for the British Grand Prix at Silverstone. And I was a little worse for wear after a huge session the night before. I found the queues for the bathroom too long, and with a dodgy stomach, I lurched off and vomited copiously behind a hospitality tent. Okay. Wiping my mouth and looking up to see if anyone had seen my scandalous behaviour, I unfortunately gained direct eye contact with the young princes who were being <laughs> ushered to the racing event by an entourage of appalled-looking men in black. Saying, oh, don't look at him. Game. Don't look at him. That's what happens if you don't go to school. It was one of those magical moments that, uh, you know, if I could relive it, I wouldn't have looked up. But yeah. uh, I felt better for vomiting. Um, <laughs> I've, I've, I've also spilt a whole tray of champagne all over Prince Philip. That's a story for another time. So my, my dalliances with royals have always ended in disaster. So I tend to avoid them. I think um, that we've got the intro for the next podcast sorted out. Um, <laughs> but it, we seem to be getting a bit of a theme here. It's like you attacking royals and government leaders. Well, yeah, clearly, uh, clearly there's a there's a part of my brain that wants to attack authority, yes. which you're, I think is, is to be fermented. You know? Yeah, you're, you're, you're it, a reluctant revolutionary. <laughs> Enough of my carrot and tomato riddled tales of daring do. Gross. It's, time to, <laughs> it's time to crack on with the podcast. That's Blender. Blender's designed to swirl together an eclectic mix of guests, opinions and fun into what we hope is a thoughtful blend, which may actually end up more like vomit, to be honest. Gross, also. <laughs> <laughs> That's right. Blender has many elements that we like to combine into a rich mix of goodness for your consumption. <laughs> These include uh, geek cred. We're all self-confessed geeks here at Blender, and we're very happy to, to have that label. Uh, we're going to be asking our guests as well if they're happy with that label and, uh, and for them to prove how much of a geek they are. Nice. And we can't do an episode of Blender without the almost legendary Icy MiFi when I'll be looking into some dark, dusty corners of the global news arena. George, remind me what IC MiFi stands for. IC MiFi, I'm going to force this through as a brand. IC MiFi is in case you missed it for your information. That's it, IC MiFi. You yeah. heard it here first. Exactly. Why use one acronym when can you use two? And then, of course, we've got um, a regular look at the wisdom of Reddit, uh, where we grab whatever nonsense catches our eye among the infinite threads of the hive mind and worry about the, what the world is really thinking. Exactly. So that's the introductions over with. Let's hand over to some real people. That's what you're here to listen to, I'm sure. And our first guest today is Stuart Ross. 
Stuart Ross is the first ingredient in, in the blender mix for this episode. <laughs> Stuart is a leading management coach and best-selling author, a managing director of High Growth based here in the East Midlands, not far from me here in Nottingham as it goes. But he works with clients and companies right across the globe. Stuart and I have been working together for just over a year now, and one thing in particular struck me about his work, storytelling, language, and the power of metaphors are all crucial to his support for entrepreneurs, and it works. With my Juno hat stuffed firmly on my head, surely storytelling in business is just the marketing department getting above themselves, and they should just mind their knitting while the data nerds do all the heavy lifting. Is that right? Prove me wrong, Stuart. <laughs> oh, good morning. Um... That's a, that's a great assertion, George. No, I, I think it's, it's more than that. I think when we think of stories, I mean, stories are basically what makes us as individuals. You think in terms mm. of everything we think, uh, things happened to us in the past, everything we think may happen to us in the future is simply a story um, in our mind that's um, driving us and driving us forward or affecting into how we go and behave. So stories really go and affect sort of everything. And I think what marketing does do very effectively is, yes, they are storytellers and they need to be master storytellers to be effective about getting a message across to potential sort of customers. Should CEOs be better storytellers? Is this what we're saying? Oh, 100%. Um, I mean, you look at the, the um, best entrepreneurs out there over the, you know, the century. You know, you've, you've got a typical one every generation. You've got Henry Ford. You've got your Steve Jobs. Now, now it's Elon Musk. What's common amongst every one of those is they are master storytellers. They know how to go and create a story, how to put the emotion in the story, how to mm. engage people, and therefore take them to another sort of level. And again, that's why I believe in terms of they're successful. So without a doubt, CEOs need to be storytellers. They need to be telling their employees, their stakeholders, their customers, you know, where they're going with the company, get people engaged and stuff with that. Stuart, do you think the internet to some extent is killing storytelling, certainly the verbal tradition of storytelling. Yes and no. I mean, it, interesting enough, what it's stopping is maybe the the face-to-face -face sort of storytelling, the verbal yeah. storytelling. But if anything, I think what, where people are becoming better online are becoming better storytellers. Mm, I mean, let, okay. let me give you a very simple sort of example. If you look at, for example, the, the best websites out there, the best brands and stuff out there, they really sort of cover sort of three things. You know, what do you offer? How will it go and make your life better? And what do I need to go and buy to uh, actually go and make my life better? That's what they're doing through their web pages and through their stories. Now, isn't that the essence of storytelling? If you look at any great story, it's got a hero. What does the hero want? It then goes through, okay, who or what is opposing the hero getting what he or she wants? Mm. And then it ends up with, what would the hero's life look like if she or he gets what they actually want so it's asking the three fundamental sort of questions when it comes to building any story up from the great web pages out there that's what mm. they go and do nice so you're saying us consumers are actually heroes that's a nice thought <laughs> yeah heroes yeah. and and a lot more yeah. there was um <laughs> let me just uh, interesting enough let me just uh, tell you a, a story if i relate to please that. do that's what you're here for tell us stories, that's what i'm here for so as you said earlier take your seats and here we go <laughs> um so back in 2006, uh, a New York Times journalist, a guy called Rob Walker, set out to determine whether storytelling you know, was a powerful tool you know, or not. Yeah. So what he did, and interesting that this links to Will's question about you know, online, he started the project by sort of bringing together 200 really low value items. The average price of each was about $1.25. Yeah. Then he took care to ensure that there was nothing particularly special about any of them. 
there was a plastic banana, there was an old wooden mallet, there was a plastic motel room key. They had no intrinsic value whatsoever. And next, yeah, he telephoned 200 professional authors and invited them to become part of his, what he called the significant object study and asked them if they'd go and write a story about each one of these objects. They all said yes, you know, at no cost. And then he auctioned the items on eBay with the stories added to the descriptions. And you can Fantastic. guess what happened. Yeah, one of the items was a small plastic sort of bust of a horse's head. Yeah, so Rob had just paid 99 cents for it. And what he ended up selling it for with a story attached to it was something like $63. Wow. So was it a one-off in terms of the horse's head? No, not really. He spent $197 on the actual low-value items. He ended up selling them in total for $8,000. That's a markup of something like 6,300%. All so, thanks to stories, which transformed these otherwise inanimate yeah. objects into something of value. could also say it's the power of bullshit. <laughs> Absolutely. Absolutely. But but whether it's bullshit or whether it plays to your emotions, and mm. that's, that's the difference. You're connecting. Yeah, yeah. Yeah, a story enables you to go and connect, enables you to build a relationship, enables you to go and build those emotions up, you know, with the individual. And that's what people are buying into. Exactly. People buy yeah. on emotions, they justify, you know, on logic. Yeah. But how but we have to be honest with ourselves and say stories can be fiction. In fact, the common accepted definition of story, I would say, is fiction rather than fact. Where does that leave us? Well, that's an interesting one. I mean, you're right. All stories are fiction. But again, come back to where I started our conversation. You know, the stories we go and tell ourselves in our head, you know, they're how we see things happen. Are they sort of fiction or are they sort of reality? The stories mm. of the things happened in the past or things which are going to go and happen in the future. I happen to agree so, entirely with that. Yes, go on, carry on. So, yeah, so it's fundamentally, yeah, there may be affection, but what they are doing is connecting to you, you know, emotionally and taking you to, you know, a very different place. It's fantastic. Stuart, some of the, the best examples of, of the metaphors that you use are, are quite um, old uh, and tried and trusted, I'm sure. Uh, art of war and things like that spring to mind. Perhaps not one that you use all the time, but it's, uh, I guess, the, uh, the one that most people know of. Uh, art of War isn't a contemporary book. What are the books that are going to be written in 200 years' time, 300 years' time, that are going to use the events of 2020, 2021, or thereabouts, as their setting, do we think? That's, that's a very good question. But the stories are simply variations of maybe or something which the stories which have been told in the past, you know, uh, when you know, our ancestors or Taoists or the shamans were sitting around a campfire and telling each other sort of stories. Aren't we just doing variations of those stories now? I mean, if you look at every story, yeah, it can be summarised in a nutshell. You've got a character, you know, who wants something. You have a problem before they can go and get it. Yeah, and at the peak of their despair, a guide suddenly sort of appears and gives them a plan and calls them into mm. action. And they go and take action and they avoid failure and they get success. I mean, that, that's a basic characteristic yeah. of any story. And you look at any you know, movie, well, they normally follow that sort of formula. Yeah, this is the, the hero's journey. This is the it, hero's it, journey. Exactly. Yeah. Exactly. Yeah. So we're exactly. saying that CEOs are heroes. CEOs are heroes and you know, they need to be master storytellers to enable them to go and engage and go and take their business to a place yeah, which would totally deliver yeah, success for them and anybody who goes and works for them. This is all good stuff. It's just occurred to me, however, Stuart, that we haven't put your geek cred to the test, so we better do that now before going any further. Uh, because we should have done this at the start of the segment. But uh, we're going to do this now, just to uh, to see um, you know how, how geeky you are. Do you mind us calling you a geek, Stuart? 
Well, it's only you which calls me a geek. Yeah. So, oh yeah. right. Okay. By so, all means, George. <laughs> not at all. Oh, only geeks allowed on mm. on the Blender podcast. I'm afraid uh, we're all very proud nerds. But, okay, <laughs> let's test your geek cred, uh, Stuart. Uh, Zoom or Teams or Pub. A quick note for our listeners from the future: this recording took place around the time that the COVID restrictions were being lifted in the UK. Oh, that's an interesting one. Zoom or Teams or or pub. And for, uh, for re- and for reference, next week. I'm not asking for a date as it goes, but <laughs> what what Zoom Teams or pub next week? What's your choice? Uh, oh, Zoom. Zoom. Ah, interesting. So a lot of people would have said that uh, the pub would be um, good next week. Why why is that not the case with you? Pete, which is happening post the actual Euros. I think we're going to be staying on Zoom for the actual next week. Mm-hmm. I actually think you're absolutely right as well. Uh, Stuart, you read a great deal. You write a great deal as well. Books or Kindle? Uh, books. Books, why? I love the, the hard feel of books. And also I'm one of those awful people which actually annotate and write notes and thoughts in the actual columns of the books. I think that's you doing yourself disservice. I don't think that's a terrible thing at all. I think that's a lost art. I think more people mm. should be doing that. I think uh, perhaps the e-readers should be uh, 50% bigger so you can write in the margins that they've got there. Just mm. uh, yeah, yeah. I, have a, I have a terrible habit of proofreading a book as I go along, and it really irritates me if I find a <laughs> spelling mistake or a typo. How often have you been paid for finding a typo in a Stephen King novel in life? <laughs> <laughs> Uh, Stuart, have you ever given a one-star review? Um, yes. Ah, can you share the details of it? I've, I've given a one-star review sort of a couple of times. I mean, a one-star review at a recent sort of a, a pub, you know, a okay. restaurant I ended up sort of going to, where the actual service was awful and the food was awful, and we ended up walking out as a result. Oh, I I find the idea of one-star reviews fascinating because they are moving business in this way. They really are. What do, what do we as a society? What is our um, should we should we be giving one-star reviews? Did we in the past broadcast the fact that we were disappointed with the business? And is that something we should have been doing that we should that we now have the opportunity to do? We should be doing more. I think we should be doing it. And I think we are doing it sort of more. So I think we should be doing it. So I think sort of feedback, whether it's good or bad, you know, that's almost the breakfast of champions. That's what's going to enable the company to improve and get better and ultimately survive. So in some ways, we're doing those companies, you know, a service. The question is whether they're going to take action sort of with that. I think the part of the challenge, you know, as you say, we are doing a lot more, whereas before it used to be rare that we gave any sort of feedback. We now get those two extremes, other people which are, truly unhappy or truly people which are really happy, which really go and drive a lot of reviews you know, for businesses. It does seem to be polarised, though. Reviews are either uh, completed because somebody's ecstatic or really annoyed. You know, there doesn't seem to be a happy medium of people saying this was OK. You know, wouldn't necessarily rush back there, but it was absolutely fine. Um, unfortunately, by the, the very nature of the world of reviews, it seems to be polarised, doesn't it? Uh, indeed, sir. Hmm. Stuart, uh, Ford, Jobs or Musk, who's your ideal dinner date then? <laughs> oh, that's a, that's, a, that's a tough question. I'd love to have all three sort of come uh, to dinner. And I think, uh, yeah, for, for me, number one would be Steve Jobs in terms of what he's actually creating, the legacy he's created sort of behind him. Okay. And Elon Musk will be an interesting one if you could ever get him in, in one place for a, a length of time. Oh, absolutely. Yeah, I, mean, I think he's on episode four. I think we're going to book down for. <laughs> so, yeah. He doesn't He doesn't eat either, does he? I think, doesn't he live on a diet of McDonald's and Diet Coke or something? Or is that a popular myth? Yeah, very interesting. 
Very he, he, he is a fascinating character, and I look forward to him joining us on the Blender podcast. Um, so there we go. <laughs> from, uh, from space, I think, for, isn't it? For, well, that's yes. He, he can come to us in space and come <laughs> record it with us in space from our space office. <laughs> so, Stuart, um, we've said that Zoom uh, is, is better than a pub uh, at the moment, but uh, I do know that you've got a real world retreat planned for the future. Can you tell us some more about that? Ooh. Yeah. So, yeah, Zoom is it at the moment, but again, as soon as we can get out, we need to start connecting and stuff with individuals again, and again, mm. come back to the, the way that yeah, it is it's most natural and healthy for humans to, to communicate and spend time stuff together. So with that in mind, um, we're holding a retreat in September, the first one in September, another one, um, which will be a month or so, so later. And that is about sort of reconnecting to success. So it's about getting people who have been almost working ridiculously hard over the last year two years and survive sort of COVID and it's about okay coming back and reconnecting with themselves with their business with their energy and getting them re-energized to move forward in some ways you know it links very nicely to the storytelling so you know as part of the street what we start off by doing is okay tell us your story today we find the story the legacy they're leaving behind before the next part of the retreat in terms of creating and defining the story that they want to go and build and the rest of the lives moving forward so again get them connected to what's important with their lives and get them to go and tell a story which will be truly impactful for themselves you know, moving forward. Excellent. So this is about taking stock of life. This is about stopping for a moment and, and searching your inner feelings. Is, is this what it's all about? It's about sort of pausing, reconnecting to what's important, realigning to what's important, um, setting yourself up with the right habits and the right tools and enable you to go and deliver you know, a life, you know, which is really worth living. This is all fantastic mm. stuff. And we can find out more about that at the highgrowth.com website. Um, I believe we'll share the URL in the podcast notes for this. So anybody that's listening now, and if you're listening from the future, that's September 2021. So please don't vote if this is uh, on uh, recorded or whatever they say on um, on, on X Factor. Uh, Will, hmm. have you got any more any more questions at all? Other than I'd like to hear one of your stories, Stuart. That's a bit of a tough question, isn't it? But but could you could you perhaps leave us with some food for thought today? Uh, well, one of my favourite stories of all time, which yeah, I do tell a lot of clients and stuff, but I think it really signifies in terms of where we are sort of today, is the story of basically a, a fisherman and basically one day a fisherman was lying on a wonderful sort of beautiful beach with beautiful sort of sea with his fishing pole propped up in the sand and his solitary line cast out into the sparkling you know blue surf and he was enjoying the warmth of the afternoon sun and the prospect of catching sort of a fish and just you know he's just chilling out now about that time a businessman came walking you know down the beach trying to relieve some of the stress and the challenges he'd had in his workday and he noticed a fisherman and went up to the fisherman sitting on the beach and started to find out why this fisherman was fishing instead of working so hard to go and make a living for himself and his family. And so the businessman said, you know, you're not going to catch many fish that way. You should be working rather than lying on the beach. The fisherman looked at the businessman and smiled and replied, and what would my reward be? Well, yeah, you can get bigger nets and catch more fish, said the business, uh, businessman. And then what would my reward be, asked the fisherman, still smiling. The business replied, you will make more money. You'll be able to go and buy a big boat, which you can result in larger catches of fish. The fisherman then asked, okay, and then what my, will my reward be? The businessman was beginning to get a little bit irritated with the fisherman's mm. questions. And he answered, well, you, you can then buy a bigger boat and hire some more people to go and work for you. 
The fisherman then asks that question again, really irritating the businessman. Then what <laughs> will buyer all be? Don't you understand? You, know, you can build up a fleet of fishing boats, sail all over the world and let your employees then go and fish for you. And once again, the fisherman then asks, okay, and then what will my reward be? The businessman was actually really angry now, really red with her age and shout at the fisherman, don't you understand that you can become so rich that you will never have to go and work for a living again? You can spend the rest of your days sitting on the beach, looking at the sunset, and you won't have a care in the world. The fisherman, still smiling, looked up and said, what do you think I'm doing right now? Uh, yeah. Nice. Uh, yeah. Excellent. I want the 20, 20 mile march. I want that one. We're doing requests now, Stu. You're like a duke box. 20, 20 mile march. <laughs> oh, the 20 mile march. Okay. Yeah. So bringing it back more to, to the business point of view. So Amazon and Scott, when they were racing for the South Pole, they both set off uh, roughly the same time with the objective of going to that South Pole and reaching the South Pole sort of first. We know the story, Amazon got to the South Pole five weeks ahead of Scott and returned safely. Whereas unfortunately, Scott and his team, they got to the South Pole five weeks after Amazon, uh, the Norwegian team, and then it unfortunately perished on their return. And one of the key learnings as to why Scott was unsuccessful and Amazon was successful was Amazon followed what he called the 20 mile march. Every day, you know, they would get out and they would try to go and hit 20 miles. So when the weather mm. was great, even though they could have hit maybe 30, 40 miles, they only did 20 miles to conserve that energy. Yeah. When the weather was bad, yeah, instead of staying in the tents, they would venture out their tents and still go and hit that 20 miles. Now, interestingly, Scott took the other view. When the weather was great, he would go and push his team to absolute exhaustion. So much so that they were exhausted for the actual next day. Mm. The weather was bad. They'd go and stay in the actual tent and wait for the bad weather to pass over, maybe for a week, week or so, you know, at a time. Mm. Now, one of the key learnings behind that is, you know, Amazon followed what we call the actual 20 mile march, trying to get 20 miles every day. And that's a learning we can apply to businesses. You know, what is the pace that you need to be going at and implement consistently? It shouldn't be business, feast, famine, feast, famine. It should be about identifying a pace and following that pace on a consistent basis, mm. sustainable pace go and achieve sustainable growth not just short-term growth right that's love cool it. Yeah. love it and if and if anybody listening to this wants to hear another three thousand great stories just like this then stewart is available at highgrowth.com or contact us through through the podcast stewart that's been absolutely fantastic today it really has really appreciate that thank you very much indeed great thanks now over to Will, who's got IC MiFi. IC MiFi. IC MiFi. IC MiFi. We are Blender. You are welcome. That's it. And I hope you'll see things clearer after my short section. God, this is exciting. My chance to share with you, dear listener, some of the news you might have just missed or more likely simply chosen to ignore. One article that caught my eye recently concerns a third thumb, if that isn't mixing metaphors too much. Researchers at University College London have been training people to use a robotic extra thumb and found they could effectively carry out dexterous tasks like building a tower of blocks, playing with a ball and picking things up with one hand, which of course now has two thumbs. The researchers report in the journal Science Robotics that participants trained to use the thumb also increasingly felt like it was a part of their body. Is anyone else beginning to feel a little woozy? I feel in need of a third thumb. Definitely. Mm. I'm sold. Where do I buy my third thumb? 
Well, the creatively named third thumb is 3D printed, making it easy to customize and is worn on the side of the hand opposite the user's actual thumb, near the little pinky finger. The wearer controls it with pressure sensors attached to their feet on the underside of the big toes. What? Well, it's crazy, <laughs> isn't it? So we could actually print them ourselves, George, if the technology's there. Okay. So we, we, we print a third thumb, we attach it to our hand, we control it with our feet, Mm. And we and the benefit that we get out of this is the ability to hold up three thumbs and be really positive, I guess. <laughs> yeah. <laughs> or indeed three thumbs down and be really negative. I guess it just allows more room, richness of emotion. I imagine mm. three thumbs. Well, also it enables you to do far more complex tasks. And I think the scientific approach to the project was designed to ensure that augmentation devices like this third thumb make the most of our brain's ability to learn and adapt. And it's clear from the people that used it, they, they very quickly adapted to it and they all thought it was a wonderful, wonderful thing. So it may be not too far in the future when we see everybody wandering around with three thumbs. But cool. this is an arms race. This is a thumbs hey. race. What happens <laughs> when we want four thumbs? Well, it's exactly. like seven cheese pizzas, you know? Yeah. I mean, if you, eight cheese pizzas. I mean, where, where, where's where does it end? Yeah. Well, it's certainly fascinating stuff, isn't it? But perhaps less complicated, but just as interesting, is the rise of e-scooters. These infernal two-wheeled devices, the hipster transportation of choice, might be better controlled by those with three thumbs. But I digress. <laughs> I'm talking about e-scooters because it's recently been announced that they're being legalised. I already thought they were. But there's an e-scooter yeah. rental trial now running in London. Okay. Sadly, despite the chance of better control via three thumbs, the NHS might find it's under even more strain after an e-scootability index revealed London ranks 20th, that's bottom place in the UK. It lost points for both its potholes and its air quality. So my message is don't ride an e-scooter. Well, so just to clear things up then, what we're saying is that the, the UK is covered by millions of illegal scooters. I think the problem is that obviously riding them on pavements is dangerous, but equally for the user, riding them on the road could be quite dangerous. So it's a bit of a legal grey area. Certainly where I live in central London, I see them ripping around on the pavements. And uh, there was one guy even in Sainsbury's the other night who told the security man to F off when the security man asked him to dismount his scooter whilst riding around the store. <laughs> <laughs> In fairness, if you ride a scooter into a store, they do have a point. Um, well, yeah. precisely. Yeah. yeah. I, I see that Newcastle uh, is the, the UK's most uh, e-scooter-friendly city. Um, well, exactly. Yeah. Mm, very interesting. Yeah. Obviously renowned for its smooth payments. All those, all those tarmacers. <laughs> yeah, let's not generalise in any way, shape or form, shall we? Yeah. <laughs> Although I, did, I didn't know, also noticed that Westminster came in um, at the second, so the big smoke, London, doesn't do too badly. Mm, there yeah. are parts of London that perhaps are OK. Yeah, it's because nobody nobody lives in Westminster, so you could probably happily cruise around there on your e-scooter in a circle for hours. <laughs> <laughs> Good point. What moving else have you got on? for us? Yes, well, yes, let's. Precisely, moving on. Machines, eh? George, you and I love machines. Hey. Love them or hate them, they're here yeah. to stay. Yeah. And I've certainly kicked a few vending machines in my time, and yeah. my hatred for empty ATMs knows no bounds. <laughs> it turns out those of us who've been affected by COVID-19 are showing some other strange symptoms of being nicer to machines. How weird oh. is that? Yeah. I don't actually think they mean kissing the office photocopier when no one's around. 
rather a, a measured uptake in goodwill, both to humans and to human-like autonomous machines. Oh, wow. Let's remember it was machines that helped us create the vaccines so fast. And during the pandemic, of course, we all grew more dependent on machines to purchase products online, work remotely from home and take classes. Yeah. But it turns out now that researchers at the University of Southern California have unearthed that during times of distress, we treat our machines more like we treat other people. Okay. So one tiny benefit of COVID-19 then might just be that we're beginning to bridge the gap between humans and technology. Oh, wow. That would be good. Or this could be everybody hedging their bets and just buttering up machines in preparation for artificial intelligence taking over the world. Mm, yeah. Remember just... how nice I was to you. Exactly. Yes. Mm. It, it, people are still like saying, listen, if you're going to take over the world, I don't mind being a cat animal. I don't mind being a dog or a cat for an AI, but just make sure that I've got a nice little place to sleep in the corner whilst you kill everybody else on the planet. Exactly. Well, George, I could talk about this for hours, but I'm off on a hot date with Alexa. <laughs> <laughs> Fantastic. Is, is that all of uh, Icy My Fi? Icy My Fi for today, or have we got any more Icy My Fi's? That's it for today. I'm exhausted. That's Icy My Fi <laughs> for today. Fantastic. We are Blender. You are welcome. Joining us now is Sylvain Rochon. Sylvain, could you tell us where you are in the world today, physically? I am physically not on the space station. Uh, <laughs> physically, I am in Ottawa, Canada. Would you like to be on a space station rather than Ottawa, Canada? Uh, Ottawa is beautiful this time of year. So, um, But one of my, uh, I guess my dreams is to be kind of a space pioneer, perhaps be uh, early and some of the Mar uh, Mars colony, just mm. because it would be cool, but uh, extremely dangerous. So I'm not sure yet if I'm going to do the, the, wow. the voyage. So, so they, you're actually answering now questions that we might have had planned for later in the interview. So there you go. So that's the answer. You would accept the offer of a one-way trip to Mars. Is that correct? Uh, I, I would, yeah. Yeah. Fantastic. Uh, I'm, I'm like that. <laughs> and you are also an international speaker, author, and futurist, and you follow a broad range of the coolest topics and trends, including artificial intelligence, nanotechnology, 3D printing, gene editing, distributed ledgers, so blockchain, wow. right? <laughs> And you've also got bachelor's degrees in biochemistry and chemical engineering. That's accurate so far, right? Correct. And also I have a degree in education. Yes. Awesome. So with a background like that, I think we can skip geek cred. Uh, so, so then geek cred is where <laughs> we, we, we ask our guests, you know, to, to demonstrate their geek credibility. But um, I think you proved that. But I can't resist. So I'm going to ask you a few questions. So have you, have you ever had a flame war? I have not. You've never had a flame war. How long have you been on the internet? Uh, I um, I don't participate in flaming. Uh, mm. I just ignore these kind of uh, uh, dialogues. That's a I key dislike, difference. Uh, yeah. I, I like rational argumentation. Fantastic. Has anybody tried to start a flame war with you? Uh, probably not. Well, if they <laughs> did, I haven't seen them because I avoid the comments. Love it. <laughs> you didn't even notice that somebody wanted to <laughs> get to flame war with you. That's terrific. It really is. Yep. It's without context, sans context. More memory or faster processor? Faster processing. Okay. Now, with context, is that with computers or in a human brain? Or um, what, 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 is, what is faster processing better than more memory, do we think? Both. Both. Mm. Okay, 
fantastic. Yeah. Uh, and you've already answered a question that isn't here, but I'm going to answer it again anyway. If if Elon Musk was to offer you a one-way trip to Mars, you would say yes, please. I, I would, yeah. Fantastic. Well, uh, I, uh, I wouldn't hesitate, yeah. Well, we might have Elon Musk on the uh, on the show in a few episodes' time. We'll put that to him. Um, <laughs> we don't really have him planned for the show, but we would like to, <laughs> yeah. <laughs> Today, we're going to focus purely on artificial intelligence. Lots more we'd like to talk about, but we're just going to talk about artificial intelligence today, if that's okay. And Sylvain, mm -hmm. as, an ex as an expert on artificial intelligence, should we be afraid? <laughs> I think we shouldn't be afraid of AI uh, in a broad sense, um, especially not right this moment, um, because all AI right now are, are what we call narrow AI. They are good at a very specific task and unique and only on that task, like recognizing right. pictures and, you know, detecting languages and deciphering, uh, you know, patterns in data, things like that. Uh, where it becomes a problem is when we create narrow AI or more complex linked or networks of AI with different abilities that have the anger emotion. Oh, This is where people get confused. Like, what, are you talking about AI or people? Well, I am talking about AI. Uh, when we're, we discuss learning AI, right? AI that are able to learn, which is the ones that are interesting right now in our discussion. Mm. Okay. Uh, we actually encode within them a, uh, a set of uh, algorithms that allow the AI, given a number of unknown variables or inputs, like from data and, uh, and telemetry or whatever else uh, from mm -hmm. sensors, to converge towards a desirable outcome. Right. Mm -hmm. So, you know, imagine like a, a visual AI that needs to detect, let's say, guns and pictures, like a, let's say it's a security AI. Right. Mm -hmm. Well, you, you teach them how what guns look like and teach them different things, but you don't want to encode exactly different pictures of guns because maybe people are trying to fool it. So you, you need it to learn what a gun may look like so they can detect those as well, not just those in a database somewhere. Mm. Right? Uh, so you're embedding it with a, with an ability to be creative, to figure out what may be a, a gun pattern in somebody's pants or, or bag or things like that. And that's actually instilling it with emotion in a general sense, just like okay. our emotions function like that. And uh, anger is a detection, of, like a, a processing of inputs at a basic level, processing of inputs. And the outcome or the output of it is, is an action or impulses to remove uh, an obstacle, something that prevents the, uh, the intelligence or the being from achieving a certain goal. That, that can be absolutely encoded in so that you interact with it. The AI interacts with the environment hmm. and then it tries to converge, do its job, what it's trained to do, detect like the guns and pants or whatever it is, right? Mm -hmm. yeah. And then if, if, the, if the outcome, if the if it detects something, it's prevented from actually doing that and it's coded to, 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 to act and to try to remove the impediment to its job, yeah. it's going to be creative doing that, right? And it may hmm. be connected to actuators like robotic actuators that are connected to hydraulics okay. and it may uh, rip somebody apart <laughs> yeah, nice so, so, so that's uh, anger hmm. taking it a little further maybe it's maybe it's anger without the associated morality if we're if we're going to enable them to feel an emotion surely that has to be driven by a degree of morality as well which is you know the the, the more human element of it 
Right, and the morality, uh, we do code morality inside our, inside our algorithms because we do tell them, okay, this behavior, good, this behavior, bad, right? Yeah. Who, yeah. Uh, but whose morality? <laughs> whose morality exactly. is being yeah. coded? Who, who, who mm. gets to say this is good, this is bad? Oh, it's the programmer, mm. okay. right? right? Which, who's human? Mm. <laughs> but there could be a megalomaniac. A problem. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> right? So if you look at the dangerous AI at this stage right now is really the applications tend to be military. Mm. Because those self-regulated uh, or self-directed robots that we want to pull in the field so that they can operate without humans and without remote control that are contained in the box so that they can't be hacked in very easily, they're hardened. Uh, you know, a signal can, like from a remote location can be hacked and, and or blocked. So you have these, these possible like little tanks, for example, that are entirely AI controlled uh, and, and um, the AI is sequestered inside that box, but it has its own program and what to do and what to target, who to go through. But it is inherently, because it's a military application to actually cause harm, it inherently has the anger emotion or, or, or the machine variant of it because mm. its actions, its output or outcome from being blocked from doing its job sometimes needs to be violent. Mm. You need to remove the obstacle. You need to remove the enemy to get to the, the leader target, the Taliban leader, whatever it is, right? Mm. Um, and, but it is on its own deciding what it does. And then you get into those kind of thinkings where you think about Skynet, like from Hollywood. Uh, yeah which is a military AI that's designed to have that level of understanding uh, or, or capabilities and ethics. Like there are some situations where it is totally okay to use force to remove an obstacle and then decides, well, you know, the real obstacles is the actual, is everybody. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> because yeah. we're destroying each other. And so let's eliminate everybody because it, it has that type of ethos and thinking embedded in it. In it. Yeah, this hmm. is the narrow this AI is... like that we use for self-driving cars or other applications don't have that because it's yeah. it's useless, it's pointless. So they are yeah. harmless. This is the, it's like a Twilight Zone episode, isn't it? Where an AI is given the job solve world hunger, and the AI says, "I'll kill eight billion people." Solved. Nobody's hungry. <laughs> yes. Yes. Yeah. Okay. <laughs> so, um, and, and just so our listeners do have some idea about this, because both Will and I don't profess to be AI experts, I think we're following a little bit, but I think we do need mm. to drill down a little bit more. We, and let's keep this as simple enough for us. So we've got Skynet, mm. and we've got. A, a Vic Twenty Spectrum Commodore sixty four type program, and and an Elisa program that might have been from the eighties. <laughs> yeah, right. um, is, is that right? You know, so this is just that's not true intelligence, or it's not thinking for itself. What tell us the difference between that machine learning expert systems and something that might spiral out of control? Well, machine learning is just a technique on how to make AI. Anyway, like I, I don't want to be too too geeky about it, too technical about it. Please but do it. it. It's, it's it's a way to, to train a, uh, an AI to to change its behavior dynamically based on different circumstances, right? So what we're having right now, it's really, really dumb. Like truly, the AI we have right now, what we call narrow AI, is truly dumb. Mm. You know, the, this, this visual, visual uh, you know, gun detection AI, for example, does absolutely has no awareness of anything else except looking at pictures and checking mm. if there are guns in it. That's mm. it. Right? That's all it knows. It can't get out of that box and do anything fancy with it. Where it really gets interesting is that that dumb AI 
is very similar to if you kind of isolate, like, for example, our um, visual cortex, right, or, or a small piece of our visual cortex, it only has this one job, it doesn't know anything else to do, connected with the rest of the brain, with the, uh, the amygdala, with the, the thalamus, and all the other pieces of the brain of, of its functionality, all of a sudden, you get something pretty amazing, right? Mm. So in the world right now, what I see between now and 2040, between 2030 and 2040, we're, we're going to have billions of really good narrow AI. They're individually, they're all hyper dumb. They can't do uh, harm to anybody, no problem. But they all be networked together because right. we'll want that productivity and that efficiency. We don't want to just mm. do a query and ask, okay, detect this. Okay, and then you ask the other AI, well, okay, well, write a script about this. And, you know, no, we're all going to have it connect, connected together through smart, smart systems and having working together to get complex outcomes. Now you get through that collective network of narrow AI, of really dumb AI, you, you get something akin to, uh, to human level intelligence. Mm, like a hive mind, if you like. Yeah. Uh, kind of. And, uh, and not only the AI would be connected like that, but we would be connected to it. Yeah. Our brains would be, because we become inputs and outputs of that too. Wow. So, Actually, so, so, sorry, sorry. Could, yeah, could you just ahead. explain that little bit? A li could you just um, zero in on that little bit that you just said then and, and explain it a little more, please? Yeah, you know, our, our, we're connected to our smartphones, hmm. okay. right? Um, <laughs> and our That's smartphones have AI. We use that AI. The AI is connected to the internet. The internet, you know, when you're, you're doing a search, let's say you're using your, um, your voice assistant, your Google or your Alexa or whatever, uh, it detects your voice and deciphers what you're, what you're trying to say. But that information is on a server somewhere, and it go, uh, let's say you ask you want to shop for yellow shirts. Well, it, it connects to other uh, algorithms and other AI to say, well, what is this yellow shirt and what is it doing? And well, how, how can I buy it? And it, it can connect to other things and then connects to, let's say, a, a shipping AI that'll, that'll ship it. And that's actuators because it's actually, it actually has little wheels. And mm. a fulfillment center, which has also AI to kind of go and, and manage the, uh, the actual order. And then you can connect that to, uh, to other artificial intelligence that manage resources, like how much resources is, is this taking up a year and how much can we, should we grow or extract from the earth in other industries? I mean, these can all be connected together uh, because they're all kind of gather, like, uh, gather uh, or distribute data from each other to, to function in the economy, which is a resource economy. Um, uh, so you have all like billions of AI, all super dumb connected yeah. uh, and doing the job or the tasks that usually people would, would, would need to do, but we don't want to want to because we want to do other things yeah. uh, and they, they do things. But because each individual AI is doing a specific job and there's no overarching consciousness, let's say, that kind of like looks at this like, hmm, like as an AI form, let's look, well, you know, we should be doing something completely different together. It just yeah. does the task that it's asked to do. It yeah. doesn't start having grandiose ideas of world domination all of a sudden. <laughs> yeah, exactly. No, but, 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 but what we're saying there is that that can possibly result from this kind of plugging together a billion dumb AIs. Whoever thought that plugging together a billion dumb AIs would create one good AI? Um, <laughs> this doesn't seem natural, but so who, who, and I think I know the answer to this, who is keeping track at the very highest level? Who is scaling with this and keeping to, to a check to make sure that this isn't spiraling out of all control? No one. 
Mm. I did think that would be the answer. No. Okay. The the uh, the closest entity we have that's kind of putting checks into this is the as far as I know is the World Economic Forum. Okay. Who right. have published, I believe, in 2017, some uh, guidelines, and of course they have no enforcement authority anywhere, right? No. No. But they they publish some guidelines for for developers of AI, some ethical guidelines, a little bit like our modern equivalent of the third law, and the three laws of robotics. Uh, Isaac Asimov kind of was like, yeah. okay, if you're developing yeah, yeah. AI, he's here's our the, the ethics you should follow to to make sure that the AI that are out there are actually not gonna end up killing us in the future, right? Yeah, yeah, yeah. Uh, things like, and it most of it is about is about well, try not to create bias in the AI and they try to try to make AI better than the programmer, than yeah. human beings. Mm. Yeah. But isn't Hollywood and the media hype to blame for our inherent fear of AI? I, I believe so. Mm. And it's it's commercial, right? It's more exciting to think about like Vicky from iRobot that's just yeah. decides, well, we need through in her case, it's not anger, it's compassion. It's like, mm. oh, you guys are just keep killing each other. Like it's a little control to kind of control you so that you can be safe. And killing a few a few of you is better than you just leaving yeah. you to your own means and killing each other, right? So she's being actually compassionate <laughs> in the yeah. movie. <laughs> who is your favorite or who is the most accurate Hollywood AI or self-aware robot? What's your favorite movie that's got AI in? A little known movie, which I really love. It's called Her. Uh, uh, yeah. Literally H-E-R. Yeah. Right. Yeah, yeah. If you haven't seen that movie, that is a wonderful movie. And it, for, for one, it actually portrayed, portrays AI in a positive light. And it's much more realistic. And it, it does go a little bit Hollywood where mm. I don't want to say to, to. Yeah, don't give it. Don't give, it's a love story as well. But it's it basically a love story. But yeah. wonderful actor like, uh, you know, um, Scarlett Johansson is the AI voice. And yeah. then uh, Jonathan Walking, Phoenix is the main character. Phoenix, yeah. A wonderful movie, but um, that's my favorite because it does. It is more accurate. You know, the evolution of AI as it's portrayed. It's basically an AI OS, right? An operating system in this uh -huh. case. Mm. Um, you know, developing a consciousness, a personality. That is something that I mean, we could develop that, uh, and I don't see a reason why not. Mm -hmm. uh, and then there's you know, kind of a. Um, living with a advanced AI, like whether they're networks of narrow AI or a design like super intelligence and super AI like on its own. Mm -hmm. um, that's more what I see for us and as a desirable future. It's really mm -hmm. partnerships. You're actually creating new sentient beings in a way mm. that are partnering with us. We do what humans want to do, which is not work, generally speaking, do things mm -hmm. that we enjoy. Mm -hmm. And AI can be built to enjoy things that we don't like to do, but need to be doing. Mm -hmm. uh, so you set up those emotions so that they'll enjoy picking garbage, for example, mm, as a yeah. rough example. And then that's their fun. So if we try to take that away from them, they'll say, <laughs> hey, get away from my garbage. This is what I enjoy to do because they are triggered by fun and good emotions mm. doing that. And they converge and, and continue to do that really, really well because it gives them a kick, right? Mm. You're creating essentially a, a new sentience uh, eventually by doing that. But we're a, we're, we're a long way from sort of conscious robots. Aren't I right in saying that AI at the moment is basic machines and, you know, data wrangling and, and taking 
learnings from huge data sets that would otherwise take a computer a lot longer. Yeah, it's it's only really calculations right now, mm. and it's uh, it imitates a lot of behaviors and uh, emotions and consciousness. But there's a huge discussion about like which we surfaced. Um, what is consciousness? Because then we get into yeah. to a point. Well, how do we measure that 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 threshold being crossed if, yeah. if there is such a thing? Yeah. Uh, and we don't even know what consciousness is on a, in a, inside a human. There's, there's a lot of uh, arguments about what it means for us mm. and versus animals or even plants. Like because people get emotions with their dogs. Say, well, my dog has consciousness because it's my dog, right? Well. Mm. How do you define consciousness and what level do you actually reach that? Does that mean just being aware of your environment? Because plants have that. AI certainly are aware of the environment. That's why they have all those sensors. Are they conscious or mm. are they not? It's a question of definition more than anything else. Love it. And I think we've already lined up a future podcast then. You know, um, consciousness in cats, definitely. <laughs> yeah. You can't have too many cats on the internet. So we'll definitely be taking a look at that. Uh, no, Sylvain, this this is all terrific stuff. What about those people who are going to lose their jobs to AI? What do we say to those people? Uh, I tell them you will. Mm. Yeah. <laughs> Just deal with it. You're going to lose your jobs. Okay, well, fair enough. There's the part. Well, yeah, we have to. I think we have to deal with the the idea that we will not. Eventually, none of us will be the locus, or or the um, the central piece in. In, in the predictivity part of our lives, of our economy, AI and data with actuators like robotics will surpass us in productivity. And therefore, if me being employed, it'll mean that you get your whatever order, right? Slower and more expensive and at a lower quality. Do you want me to work? Hmm. Hmm. Probably not, because like, mm -hmm. no, as a consumer, mm -hmm. I want cheaper and it's better for the environment, like less resources, less wastes. Yeah. Uh, you know, we have to take care of the whole planet, too. So it, it's just like between now and 2040 ish, we're going to go from currently. Well, actually, this is four years ago. Uh, McKinsey um, did some studies like about 50 percent of all tasks in a workplace could be achieved better with AI. OK, wow. Yeah, what that was four years that? ago. OK. And by 2030, it's going to be over 70%. And that includes new tasks and new opportunities and new jobs emerging from, from disruptions. That includes that, okay? And I can explain that as well, because that hasn't been the case throughout the, the course of mm. human history. That's different. By 2040, it's going to be over 95% of all tasks will be better achieved, more productive by AI. So wow. we have to absolutely change how we see our economy, we cannot be the center of the productivity of the economy because it doesn't make any sense. And therefore, if we're not making money from working, then we can't spend money. So, so we have to redistribute resources in an entirely different way so we can keep being free uh, and doing things that we want to do and, uh, and achieving goals and whatnot. And be, but it won't be work for compensation otherwise you suffer or die or you <laughs> you know so, you have some kind of penalty to it right so Sylvain, in your experience does any political group on the planet know what it's talking about when it's hmm. in discussions around artificial intelligence oh it's, none of them do None of them do. Okay. No, no. Is, a, a government level, a reactionary, uh, and I got to say, most of the people that are in government either uh, understand it but can't talk about it because other people around them don't get it. Yeah. 
or they just simply don't get it. Like you've got a lot of uh, people in governments that are mediocre minds. They, um, they're, they're great at getting elected mm. Um, mm. and perhaps the, a, yeah, at yeah. legislation and lawmaking. They're, none of them are, are AI experts. It's, it's an emerging tech that yeah. a few people truly understand. So no, they have no clue. What they do know is that there is this fear, like in Canada, I'm here in Canada, there's pre-time pandemic, 2019, there was a survey done uh, among Canadians, all, all income levels were, were surveyed. And one of the questions was, which was, outcome was super interesting was, are you afraid of losing your job? Very simple question, right? Mm. And this, you have people from like poverty line to $300,000 a year, right? Like, or, mm. or more. 80% of respondents says yes, that they're afraid. This was pre-pandemic, right? Yeah. Mm. Okay. We're afraid because it's they don't know that something's going on. They can't really put their thumb on it. Mm. But they're concerned either because their job is going to be their, their replacement because of our automation. They don't know where are they going to be working. Where They know they'll be transitioning to something different. They don't know what and what do they need to be retrained. And there's all, all these questions. It's the, the, the future is nebulous for the worker. And the government is no help because mm-hmm. they don't know. They don't yeah. tell people because they don't know or they don't want to venture into into possible scenarios like a futurist like me would because that's mm-hmm. my job. I do, you know, a scenario planning and I say, well, this is a possible future. Direct towards that one because that one is way better for people. And here, here are the actions you can you can take to get there. They don't do that. So mm. people are are really afraid of of the future that they don't know and nobody's really telling them what it is. And scientists in the fields, because they're scientists, they really would say. Truthfully, they'll say, I don't know, hmm. because they're scientists. If they don't know something, good scientists say the answer is, I don't know. Yeah. So it's, <laughs> so it's very frustrating for people. Yeah. Who, who does know, then, Sylvain? Who do, other than your good self, of course. People that do uh, strategic foresight, or at least technology foresight, which is that, that what I just described. You look into, you see different scenarios, these possible scenarios and plausible ones, and you can, you, know, it, it, you can create a plan that leads towards one of these, which is not guaranteed. It's the future. You mm-hmm. can't guarantee it. And, and some governments, in fact, have like in Canada and also in the EU, at least like in our neck of the woods, and there's many other nations that do, uh, Singapore has a very strong one. They, they they have embedded inside the federal government uh, centers of foresight. But okay. if I, because I discuss with the people here in Ottawa, they are mm-hmm. basically ignored. <laughs> they work, okay, yeah, but they're not. They, wow. Yeah. yeah, they they are not really because it's it's not down to earth. It's not part of the tasks that need to get done by uh, by the bureaucrats, right? It's mm-hmm. uh, oh yeah, think about this. Maybe in five ten years, maybe this will happen. They say, well, you know, tell me what it does, and then <clears> we'll do something about it. Right. Right. Do you think that's partly the fault of the political system whereby, you know, the, our elected officials are there for X amount of years and they're concentrating purely on that period? And and Correct. this this kind of thing is, you know, 25, 50 years into the future. They don't have the time or the budget simply to look that far ahead. But having said that, they should then be paying attention to the people that they are paying to look that far ahead, shouldn't they? Uh, well, I'm advocating for a... Uh, along with a needed uh, change in how economy works, because mm. if we don't change it ourselves consciously, it'll change for us. Yeah. And then we're in trouble, right? Mm. This is, I guess, the crux of it. What will yeah. happen if if we, as warm, fleshy humans, don't take action? What happens? What eventually happens if these systems are allowed to exponentially continue with whatever dumb 
goal <laughs> that is un unattainable, um, you know, what happens eventually? Well, it, it, that's hard to tell, but there, there is the, this breaking point. And let me break it down real, real simply, okay? Consumers want things that are faster, more customized, cheaper, higher quality, mm. right? That's what we want all the time. It's always been this way. And the way we're actually getting, especially customization by the segmentation of one, Colin Marketing, right? Mm. Is through AI, because AI is able to say, okay, Will, yeah. I know what your search industry is. I know how many family members you are. I know where you are, blah, 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 yeah. all this data. Yeah. Uh, you know, I'm providing you something specifically for you, right? Yeah. Mm. So that's the yeah. customization that AI and only AI allows because you can't have your personal assistant kind of figuring things out and doing everything for mm. you. Yeah. But, but you have AI that's doing that, right? So that's that. Um, and that's what we want. And the whole market is driving on what the customers want. So companies, what do they do? They compete with each other to cater to the consumer. Consumer mm. wants customization. Okay, well, let's develop more AI, all right? They want higher quality at low cost, faster. Well, that means a lot of automation because people are slow, they get sick, they make mistakes. Yeah. <laughs> like, yeah, yeah. So automation, more AI, more automation, more automation. So everybody's mm. Developing automation investments are huge in automation, AI everywhere because of that. Those two drivers, and it's because of us, dumb individuals. Yeah. Dumb <laughs> just, I want my thing right now. And now, you know, we that's what we want, and it's good, good for the environment gotcha. again. More productivity, more efficiency is great for the environment too. It's not a bad thing, mm. right? Okay, great. You got all that, that stuff done. And then, well, the people, like you're eliminating a whole bunch of tasks and jobs that people are, are traditionally using. So you're not getting paid. Now you're, you're, you, don't, you can't buy stuff, right? Mm. So how do you consume you know, that, what the robots are making now that you used to do? So there's this, this big kind of cycle of negativity in the economy. Yeah, yeah. Ultimately, I, I've been thinking that uh, we humans are driven by a desire to have purpose. And if all of these AI-powered robots, whatever, are taking over all the jobs, then doesn't that mean that we as humans lose purpose? And that's well, a terrifying Well, we, we define our purpose through our jobs for centuries. Mm, yeah. Right? So time mm. to time to redefine uh, our very essence, if you like. Well, let, right. let's, let, let's wrap this up because we're, we're running out of time. Let's actually define the utopia that we're all aiming towards. What would that be? Would the, and let me just posit it, just in case um, it speeds things up. So 100% of the people are not working, enjoying a wonderful life with great nutrition, with no, no worries about uh, income or such like. Is that the ultimate utopia? We're all in the park having a picnic. Hmm. Well, I think there's no such, no such thing as utopia per se. But that is the model that I'm advocating for. It's like, essentially, like, let AI do everything that needs to get done yeah. in a, as especially as productive as possible yeah. for all sorts of reasons. And let us choose and pick and choose what we want to do with our free will. Yeah. Uh, like, uh, and let's call them not jobs, creativity. but occupations, because we want to find our own purposes. Yeah. Mm. I'm going to build, I'm going to tell the AI, okay, hold on. I know you're better at this than I am, but I want to do this one. Mm. Yeah. Right. And yeah. so I get to do it because I want to do that. Yeah. Um, right. So that's the I, I would I prefer calling it the ideal future, which can be built starting now. And we can have, can have the starts of that within the next 20 odd years. Um, it, it's not that far off. We're the, the things are accelerating so fast in the AI world 
that will have the capabilities and the systems and the connectivity and the networks of AI and actuators really quick to actually just switch up to a different system where we're, it's not about money anymore. It's more about how do we distribute resources and the legwork is done by AI and robotics. Mm. It's a wow. fantastic future. Sylvain, please join us on a future podcast because we have barely scratched the surface of this and we've talked about so many other elements on the, on the sidelines of this that are going to become crucial as time goes by. But can you join us for a future podcast? Would that be possible? It would be a pleasure, George. Fantastic. That's great. Well, thank you very much for joining us today, Sylvain. Uh, Will, unless you've got any more questions. No, thank you very no. much, Sylvain. Really nice to chat with you today. Cheers. Fantastic. Cheers. Thank you, Richard D. Thanks. Bye-bye. Bye. We are Blender. You are welcome. Now, Reddit. It's brilliant, isn't it? Power mm. to the people. Power to those people. <laughs> the millions of geeks and nerds and dweebs, just like us here at Blender, deciding the fate of the planet. One day, they might try to bring down capitalism. And the next day... Well, let's find out. Let's find out what's on the hive mind. Let's see what the future has in store for all of us. And so I um, I didn't um, share with everybody uh, in the last episode that I'm taking these from the unpopular opinion subreddit of Reddit, uh, because I'm thinking that if this is where the unpopular opinion is being challenged by the hive mind, then this is where we're going to find the great new ways of looking at life in 2021. And the first unpopular opinion is that wind farms aren't ugly, something I happen to agree with as well. What about you, Will? I do agree. I'm a big fan. <laughs> hey. <laughs> well, I think I think what's uglier than a wind farm is dying from a 2% rise in temperature, which will catastrophically alter the planet's ecosystem. <laughs> Absolutely. Yeah. I mean, it, it, we don't even... I don't think, though, we have to be just uh, all um, pearl-clutching. We don't have to be judgmental. You're absolutely right. We have no choice but to switch to wind farms. But I also believe that they are inherently attractive. Some of the people on Reddit agree with me as well and with you, Will, as you just said. And this great phrase, alien flower garden. Mm, I saw that. Found at sea. And I yeah. thought that was a beautiful phrase. And a lot of other people on Reddit feel the same. Well, I, I think they stand like beacons of a bright, bold, new energy future. And I think they, they hold a great deal of promise. And apparently they are also currently supplying around 40% of the UK's energy needs. Please feel free to argue with me on that after the podcast. But I think that's pretty impressive. Nuclear is the most efficient, but wind is becoming up there. It's becoming cheaper. And I think there's a strong element of nimbyism, not in my backyardism, when it comes to people saying that they're ugly and noisy, uh, uh, horrible things. I think we all benefit from them, and I think they're really rather wonderful. Just don't want one in my back garden. <laughs> so the gauntlet that you just laid down there by saying to argue with you about these points, that was for all of Reddit to come and have a little go at you. Is that uh, have right? at it, as you yes. say. Yeah. Okay, excellent. Fantastic. Um, well, I, let, tell me how that goes on. Well, I do have one other point to make, oh. uh, and that is, what's a wind turbine's favourite colour? Oof. Okay. Blue. <laughs> you didn't give me a chance to guess it. <laughs> I, I, you could have given me a year. I still wouldn't have got it. Fantastic. But uh, my, one of the things that I was thinking about earlier when I was reading about this is, why don't we look higher? I mean, they're already pretty high, and obviously out at sea there's some high winds. 
But if you think about it, the, the, the winds that are in the upper atmosphere could surely be harnessed. Perhaps we can get Elon Musk or maybe Elon Musk's grandson onto that. Uh, I think there's yeah. a great deal of potential there. Yeah, no, you're absolutely right. Wind isn't a particularly rare commodity to mine, is it? No. Um, and there's a lot of atmosphere up there. It mm. must be easy. What are these people waiting for? Okay, so that <laughs> wind farms are attractive alien flower gardens. We, mm. we, we agree with that. Mm. The, the other thing that the hive mind that is Reddit guiding us to a glorious future has on its thoughts this week is that buttered popcorn with ketchup is far superior over all snacks in existence. That's mm. quite a tall claim. That's just disgusting. What a foul idea. That surely came from the mind of a child. I've, I've always had a personal hatred of ketchup. I don't know where it springs from, but I'm a foodie and I'm always keen on trying new flavours, but I honestly don't think I'd be interested in trying that. I do have my own very specific flavouring when it comes to homemade popcorn, and that's not at all weird. It's nutritional yeast, which is cheesy flakes, xylitol, which is a naturally occurring sugar, which is actually good for your teeth, and Mexican lime and chilli seasoning. This, this, is like, <laughs> this is a cookery lesson. We need to have a new segment. This is terrific. My, my least favourite popcorn is generic supermarket sweetened popcorn. I think it's horrible and covered in some sort of sticky chemical mess. So at least if, you're, if you've got the imagination to add something at home, I'd like to think that you were more imaginative than simply adding ketchup. It seems like the sort of thing you'd do when you were really, really drunk and there's absolutely nothing else to eat in the house. <laughs> you think there should be more imagination, more imaginative ingredients should go on top of popcorn. I think it's great that people can stop you in the street, Will, and say, Will, tell me your five favourite popcorns, and you will then <laughs> rattle off five popcorns. This is terrific. <laughs> Do you know about the mac and cheese ice cream, George, that was recently released? I have heard about this, but have yet to taste it in any way. But uh, yeah, I, I did hear about it. Yeah, but do tell me more, uh, including well, its ingredients. Mm, well, it's mac and cheese, isn't it? It's a, oh, a, a combination. Ice cream as well, surely. Craft, uh, the, the legendary makers of the original chemically enhanced mac and cheese that's probably <laughs> one of the most popular dishes in America joined forces with an ice cream maker called Van Leeuwen. I believe they're Dutch or of Dutch origin. They, they produced a limited run of, uh, I think, 2,000 pots of this mac and cheese ice cream. Okay. And it actually sold out in an hour and broke the website. I can imagine. I can imagine <laughs> that people would want a little mac and cheese ice cream. Yeah. Oh, that, again, I think that's disgusting. You know, uh, give me vanilla. <laughs> <laughs> On popcorn. Hmm. Uh, yeah, so there we go. So alien flower gardens are attractive wind farms. Um, ketchup on popcorn is the devil's work. So that's what we've worked out so far with Reddit. Let's give them another chance then. So one we agree with and one we don't agree with. Let's see what we if we agree with the other thing that is bothering the Reddit hive mind this week, and that is that the billionaire space race is cool and it isn't a waste of money. Now, I've spotted that there are multiple threads on Reddit, all basically saying the same thing, that the billionaire space mm. race is a good thing, so much so that Reddit has had to invoke its circle jerking rules. Yeah. <laughs> this is the thing. Reddit uses our circle jerking around bigging up billionaires and 
asking them to carry on conquering space because that's a better use of their money than anything else. Hmm. Do we agree with that? Uh, broadly speaking, I do. The, the, the most interesting aspect of this, I think, is that they are doing far better than any government because they're not hindered mm. by legislation, regulation, uh, funding. You could argue that their money comes indirectly from taxpayers rather than government money, which comes directly from taxpayers. But I would rather see billionaires doing that. It's imaginative, creative. It encourages innovation. Uh, it encourages kids to dream about a bright, bold new future. Everything about it is very exciting, I think. I watched uh, Richard Branson going to the edge of space just the other, right. other day, and it was absolutely amazing. So exciting. Yeah. Who, who thought that would happen in our lifetime? Exactly. I also think it fulfills our sort of inherent, lonely human nature in searching for extraterrestrial life, which is very, very exciting. Absolutely. We're all curious monkeys. We just want to see what's yeah. out there. But it is yeah. the final frontier. Should we send all billionaires into space, do you think, even if they don't want to go? Well, there was a petition that Jeff Bezos should go to space and stay there, and I think at the moment more than 50,000 people have signed that. <laughs> <laughs> uh, on, a, on a per capita basis, there must be more billionaires who are going to be uh, you know, space people very soon. Um, <laughs> it does seem that they are evolving very quickly into, into space billionaires. Hmm. Well, I think maybe they'll all have four thumbs soon as well. <laughs> we brought back the thumb. Brilliant. Hey. Excellent callback. Fantastic. So we kind of agree with, I'm going to say that I think that there is a massive amount of talking to be done around this, that mm. I agree that the blank canvas that is space offers an enormous opportunity for humanity and all of us as a species and also capitalism the the earth is a closed system in order to expand you need to bring new things into it and so i worry about the first billionaire that lands any kind of craft on a 45 trillion dollar asteroid and says there i now own more resources than the entire planet earth hmm. deal with that but I think what they land might well be a Starbucks or a, or a McDonald's. <laughs> <laughs> That's the thing. Yeah. <laughs> Fantastic. So um, the jury is out on that one uh, and we agree and disagree on the other two. So Reddit continues to be entirely random by the looks of it. We'll take another look at Reddit in the next time. Awesome. And that's it for this. So thanks from all of us for giving your ears and hopefully your brain a workout in our company. If you want to know more about how to get in touch with our guests, check out the podcast notes. Meanwhile, I'm Will Rankin. Don't Google me. You'll only get confused by my namesake, the only man in history to survive a 14,300-metre fall from the top of a thunderstorm cloud. That tale, of course, is for another episode and includes vomit and blood. Bonus. <laughs> you can throw pixels at me via will at specialnoise.com or criticise me publicly on Twitter via Rankin Rants. George, how can our three listeners complain to you? <laughs> well, we'll put links to all of these things on the show notes so that people can come and, uh, and, and tell us how they disagree with what we're saying. We, we hope that they do because they can be on the next episode telling the rest of the world how they disagree with us. Very happy to do that. For today, I'm George Hopkin, and I accept that the cats built the internet. And you can find me on Twitter at George Hopkin or just follow the links at georgehopkin.com. 
Finally for today, thank you to you all for listening. And do check out the links at Blender FM for more information about everything that we've talked about. You can subscribe to the podcast there. You can get in touch with us, find out more about the guests. So until next time, thank you very much. See you all soon. Bye, everyone. Thanks for listening. <laughs>